Chapter Three of Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Three. The church and the state combined to close that little church tighter than a waterlogged bureau drawer. When I came around the next morning to call on Father Tierney, virtually a prisoner in his little rectory, I found police at every locked door holding back the curious that had already gathered there, drawn by the smell of blood. And the church had entered in, too. It seems that the Catholic Church regards as desecrated a church in which any major crime has been committed. So even though this funny little Protestant church turned Greek Uniite and had never been blessed or used for Catholic services, the Chancery Office had clamped another lock on the door in the form of a sign forbidding all services until further notice. Well, the papers had taken the crime in hand, and the radio announcers were holding high holiday. And although the papers didn't come right out and make accusations, on account of Catholic subscribers, they did some strong stressing of the priest Beretta, and the fact that he had the only key to the sacristy that could be found. The papers, said a familiar voice at my shoulder, at their old scandal scavenger tactics. It was Carl. He was brandishing a paper in his hand. I caught his elbow and steered him down the cosmopolitan thoroughfare that is Blue Island Avenue. He gave me his paper, and as it was an edition that I hadn't seen, I read the section he pointed out. Clearly the writer thought Father Tierney was the man to play up as the suspect, and defying Catholic opinion, he had done his best. Rotten stuff, I agreed, but I added, in all honesty, after all, the data thus far is rotten too, the Beretta, the key his motives. What motives? demanded Carl, his face darkly angry. Don't get hot like that, I answered. I'm trying to see this as the police, the public see it. He's crazy to get to Russia to work to convert the Bolshevists. The one thing in his way is the lack of money. Carl flared. You talk as if you thought he did it. I grinned. Don't be so stupid. I'm merely trying to be realistic. We can't handle this case by playing ostrich or wishing for Santa Claus. We had swung round the block by this time and were once more in front of the rectory. You're right, Carl admitted grudgingly. Let's go in and see him. As we rang the rectory bell, a policeman strolled by and looked us over. Clearly Father Tierney was under close watch. Father Tierney was not alone. When he opened the door and silently shook hands with us, we saw a woman in the room. She was slender and dark and beautiful, exotic as an orchid against Russian sables, artificial as a glass rose, and dramatic. She was pacing the little rectory, which was not built for pacing. The Countess Stefanska, it was she, accepted introductions with a fractional bow, and, turning to Father Tierney, continued a gusher of speech that her entrance had evidently interrupted. The poor young priest— I felt sorry for anyone who had to face this Russian aristocrat hurtling English words over Russian ones in a rage of hysterical emotion. I shan't try to describe or transcribe her tirade. Briefly, it was clear that she still was waiting, after all these years, since the death of the Tsar, to return to her parents' estates, to servants and lands. And the key to all this was to have been the jewels. I was sorry for poor Father Tierney, under the flow of her splattering anger. I was disgusted with her arrogance, her stagey aristocracy, her glaring conceit. But it was Sergeant Riley who cut in and pulled her to a sudden stop. 
none of us had noticed his entrance. Evidently he had used the pass key. When he spoke, it was almost from the shadow of the street door. Countess Olga, he said, I realize that your jewels are very important and precious to you. Then his voice dripped chilled water. But you must not forget that the man who was guarding them was killed. You should be a little distressed about that. Her lip curled involuntarily, but she was smart enough to snap out of it immediately. You could hardly have guessed that this was the spitfire of a moment before. I am sorry for poor Radoff, she said quietly. She had placed the situation in Riley's competent hands. He gripped it firmly. Countess, I am sure of that. Her dark eyes glowed gratitude for his understanding. However, he continued, as no one seems to know the dead man, would you? She thrust the unspoken request away with a look of horror. Riley was persuasive. This man is, as you say, one of your people. Perhaps he once met in one of your haunts. If he was a servant, she replied haughtily, I could not be expected to remember him, and I do not frequent haunts. But the sergeant crossed the room, took her by the arm, and piloted her toward the door in the street. His nod bade Father Tierney, Carl, and myself to follow. We did. Riley helped the Countess sufficiently into the police car, motioned Father Tierney to get in, and, before he himself entered the car, told us to follow in a taxi. As our taxi slipped into the wake of the police car, I realized that we were headed toward the morgue. Being an artist, I dislike morgues intensely, as I dislike dead people. I followed them in, however, and stood back, against the wall, watching the Countess as Riley led her toward the draped figure on the cold marble table. She had drawn back in protest when she entered the cold room. Is it not enough that I lose my jewels? Must I look at dead men? You are our only hope, said Riley, and he reached for the awful white covering that outlined the hidden figure. If you can identify him. I know that we all stood on mental tiptoe. After all, he too was a Russian, even if only a humble sacristan. Perhaps Riley thought Radoff was not so humble. The sacristan might have had his eyes on the jewels, too. He might have known the countess, heard of the jewels. I could almost feel her stiffening in the presence of death. Her repugnance, when Riley slowly drew back the white covering, was unmistakable. But it was an objective repugnance, a protest against looking on a dead person. Suddenly we heard her scream. It was not a loud, dramatic scream this time, but one far back in her throat. Her face had gone chalk-white under her rouge. Her mouth was open in an ugly, contrasting splash of lipstick. There was no doubt in my mind about the genuineness of her emotion. Ivan! she cried, and she threw herself across the body of the dead man. We were all stunned, but Riley was in command. He took the Countess's arms and gently lifted her up. There was in his look sympathy, but curiosity too. She broke away from him, and this time signed herself with the Greek sign of the cross, and flung herself on her knees, praying in an agony of sincere grief. We waited, shaken by her sobs, as if we were close enough to feel the physical violence of them. At length she rose and turned to Riley. "'You must give me the body, of course,' she said. She turned back to the dead sacristan and clung with her gloved hand to a senseless arm. "'I have not seen him for years, since we were little children. It is he, undoubtedly it is he.' 
Again we waited. Wild with curiosity though we were, we did not dare intrude our questions or hurry her broken comments. At length she gave the hope for explanation. He must be buried, as befits my brother, Prince Ivan. Her brother? Had the sacristan known that these jewels were his sister's? And if he had known, wasn't it possible that he had regarded the jewels as his? Had he been defending them, as the police thought? Or had he been planning to take them? Was it possible that despite her authentic appearing drama, the countess and her brother were co-workers in a double-cross, a twisted conspiracy? Motioning us to follow him, Riley led the countess to a little office. The explanation that under general pressure she gave through tears was all very queer, very unconvincing. Yet it was very Russian, and sounded to me very probable, because it made so little sense. I, for one, believed it. The countess and her brother, infants at the time, had escaped with their guardians. The guardians had kept the jewels for the day when the children could use them. Then the guardians died. The children passed from the care of white Russian to white Russian. The countess and her brother were separated and finally out of touch with one another. The countess became custodian of the jewels, which the white Russians regarded as sacred, too important even to be pawned or sold. The brother and sister never met again. Did Ivan know anything about the jewels? She didn't know. Had she meant to share them with him? She drew herself up indignantly. They were his as well as hers, she reminded us. Riley pressed her no further. Back we climbed into our cars and headed for the little rectory. The crowd around the church had increased, a mob standing silently gazing at the scene, where blood had been shed. The powerful smell of blood had lured them, was holding them. The police car and our taxi came alongside the curb simultaneously. We got out hurriedly, as the crowd, alert to any least move around the scene of the crime, surged forward curiously. With difficulty, the sergeant cleared a place around his car, and into that space there jetted the woman who, of all women living, was least like the Russian aristocrat that had just stepped onto the pavement. It was Maud Bowling Whitecliffe, still dowdy, devictinish, still acid. I'm glad they're gone, she cried, repeating her haunting vengefulness of last night, terribly glad. The countess looked at her in bewilderment, but before Riley could swing his charge past the social service leader, Miss Whitecliffe had gripped the countess's arm tightly. How little jewels mean to you! Something to wear to an opera, something to stick in altar vessels. That peasants starved around you in Russia, that this street teems with people hungry for the crust you throw away. What does that matter to you? You give them to that thing. She swept her hand toward the church. Almost I think that your God has punished you. You no longer have your jewels. The church hasn't them. Where are they? The poor, my poor, may get them yet. Riley's voice was very low but it reached the ears of those of us who stood in that amazing little circle. Might I suggest, Miss Whitecliffe, that what you say almost makes me interested in you yourself. Is it possible that you know how those jewels will some day get to the poor? Miss Whitecliffe looked at him, sudden terror in her eyes. No, no, she gasped. I know nothing about them, nothing. And with quite unexpected strength, she pushed through the crowd and fled down the street. Reporters crowded around Riley, and Bob snapped in the face of the Countess. Carl and I cut away. There was nothing more for us to learn there, or so we thought. We headed for a little restaurant, and over coffee and rolls, threshed out the case. 
Carl, with that methodical mind of his, dissected the problem and laid all the elements on the table. I could almost see them on cards, indexed, marked in red or blue ink, with the degree of suspicion measured to the least fraction of an inch. Obviously, he summarized, Father Tierney is not guilty. But the noon editions of the papers had not been reassuring there. For want of anything better, the press still played up the fact that the priest Beretta was under the body, that he had the only key to the sacristy door, through which the murderer must have escaped, since Carl's entrance through the front door blocked that exit, that his work was a strong motive for the robbery. "'There's Radoff himself,' Carl went on, "'and the Countess.' I shrugged my shoulders. "'Russian aristocrats are rather careless of human life, but why should she want to steal her own jewels?' "'There's Miss Whitecliffe. She knew of the jewels, had reasons for wanting them.' and is fanatic enough to do anything for her cause. And, of course, Franz Schwartz and his gang of Nazi cutthroats. Carl's face was a study in surprise. Knock me flat, he said in a hushed voice. I never thought of them. Why not? I demanded. Do you think that they'd hesitate at a little thing like knocking off a Russian or two to get their jewels to finance their cause? Do you think they'd run even the slightest risk of letting those jewels get back to the Soviet? Let's follow that down, said Carl, banging the table, and then he suddenly became silent. There's one other suspect, Pierre, he finally said quietly. This time I was puzzled. Myself, he said at last. I laughed out loud. You're kind to laugh, he said, but after all, I was the one who found the body. I might have killed the man before I called you. All right, where did you hide the jewels? And how did you get time to hide them while I was coming into the church? That does rather stump me, he said. Just the same. I slapped the money for a sketchy lunch onto the table and laughed again. Let's go out and trail Nazis, I said. Then I added, in all sincerity, wouldn't I just like to nail this thing on them? But we unearthed nothing during the next three days, and neither did the police, except, and it seemed to have no value, unless to remove one of the suspicious clues that pointed to Father Tierney, the sacristy key. The police found it in an ash pit in the alley back of the church. It had been tossed there by the criminal, or so the police figured. The criminal had evidently closed the sacristy door on his crime, turned the lock, carefully wiped the key, and flung it into the ash pit, whose contents would be emptied into an ash cart within a few hours. Only the ash cart had not arrived, and the police had located the key for whatever good it was. Once a gambler, always a gambler, I guess, and I confess without shame that I love a little bet on the horses. That is why the Barrier Smoke Shop knows me better than does the Union League Club. My regular bet is only $2, but it's amazing what a lot of fun a born gambler can buy with a $2 bet. Anyhow, the shop is an interesting place. Mo Kleinman owns it, and Mo is an honest Jew, and a nice one, a little radical in his viewpoints, but very conservative about horses. His partner is, thus proving the authenticity of A.B.'s Irish Rose, Sean O'Rafferty, who talks with a Dublin brogue and votes a straight communistic ticket. The third member of the shop is a little fellow called, in strange polyglot, Jock Linsky. Nobody seems to know much about him, but people that hang around bookies don't pry very much into antecedents. On the fourth feudal day after the murder, I dropped into the barrier, 
which crouches in the shadows where Blue Island Avenue flows into Halstead Street. Mill Kleinman waved at me as I entered. Sean O'Rafferty came and stood at my elbow as I studied the entries for the fifth of Latonia. Down the long counter, Linsky was taking a bet from a Jap I'd seen there before, and who always bet more heavily than the cut of his clothes seemed to warrant. I shrugged my shoulders in the direction of the Jap. Who's the Oriental? I asked Sean. But Sean, who knows everything about horses, and whose only interest outside of horses is communism, had a communist personal disdain of individuals. All he did was grunt. So I picked Playboy in the fifth, laid my little bed, and meandered off. I was sorry later that my interest in the murder hadn't kept me too busy for bets, for Playboy finished somewhere in the lead of the sixth race. And as a strange thing called coincidence would have it, the barrier burst into the murder case the very next day. Sergeant Art Riley was sitting with Carl and Father Tierney when I entered the little rectory. Riley held up a single, uncut stone. Nobody needed to explain that. One of the missing jewels, I asked, taking the stone, though the question was much more of a statement. It was a perfect white diamond, two or three carats in weight. I gave it back to Riley and sat down and waited for him to speak. Do you know the barrier smoke shop? Riley asked. If for a minute you are a friend and not an arm of the law, I confessed, I'll admit that I sometimes lay down a little bet there. Riley grinned. As your friend, I'll say nothing about it to the arm of the law. Well, anyhow, you're not the only one that puts down bets there. It seems there's a Jap. I've seen him, said I. He's a regular there. Set a regular to catch a regular, was Carl's unkind comment. Riley waited until a laugh at my expense had subsided, and resumed. A little fellow named Jock Linsky, a clerk in the barrier, turned this in at a pawn shop we've been watching. We picked him up, of course, and he told us that it was left at the barrier to cover some losses incurred by this little Jap. What's the Jap's name, and where does he live? Riley shook his head. We don't know yet, but my men are on his trail. We'll find out. And if there is one jewel there, probably there are more. And if there are more... I looked a little incredulous. Will you please tell me how you're so sure that this single unset stone is one of those that were stolen? Riley laughed. We're not sure, that is, not quite sure, but a stone like that, the facet not modern in style, but cut according to a fashion of a hundred years or more ago. Carl and I wandered out into the early evening. If this Jap had possession of the stones, how did he get them? Was he working for himself or for someone else? Carl and I puzzled about this with a sense of growing exasperation. I always knew, said Carl, that jewels drew the strangest birds of prey in the world, but that they should draw a sort of worldwide international congress. And as he spoke, I saw striding toward us down the street Franz Schwartz. He was not in his bund uniform, but you could feel the uniform in every stride he took, every beat of his leather heels on the pavement. If he had suddenly snapped his hand into a Heil Hitler salute and started to goose-step, I should not have been even mildly surprised. Let's dodge him, said Carl. Dodge that big bully? Not I. I preferred to face the fellow and see how the progress of the case during the past days had affected him. Almost before we had finished our brief dialogue, Schwartz was upon us, grinning a grin that displayed every tooth for exhibition. I knew just how little Red Riding Hood must have felt when she commented on her supposed grandmama's bridge work.
Good evening, Schwartz said cheerfully. Even under his carefully articulated English, I caught the guttural that was not of our shores. We tossed him our greetings in F-sharp and B-minor, respectively. But he caught us by the arms and herded us toward a dimly lighted tavern. I owe you boys a drink, he said, and waved off any protest that might have been quivering on Carl's tongue. Three large foamy beers were placed before us, and Schwartz lifted his dine in a toast. To America, he said. May she find true peace and safety from her enemies. If you're thinking what I'm thinking, said Carl, you probably will choke on that toast. Schwartz laughed as if that were a great joke, and started to talk baseball, the murder, his deep respect and affection for Father Tierney, the latest movies. Then suddenly, Reinhardt, he said, with a German name like yours. And by the way, isn't Anton a German name, too? Don't forget the Pierre, I shot back. Nothing German about that. But Carl, he continued, Carl Reinhardt. He positively rolled the names around his tongue affectionately. That's a magnificent German name for you, though I think you've dropped a few consonants between the fatherland and here. Carl glared into his stein and said nothing. One thing Hitler has taught us, said Schwartz, wiping the foam from his lips, is this. Once a German, always a German. There is all over the world a German people bound together by common ties of blood, culture, race, loyalties. Carl, you are still one of us. I could feel Carl bristle. I nudged him under the table. Let the man talk, I thought. He'll hang himself, or give us the chance to hang him. We need young men like you in the Bund, my friend. As a rule, men come asking me to admit them. I don't ask them, but when I meet a young fellow like you, with all the qualities that make a great German, a chap who in the old country would be one of Hitler's own bodyguard. Carl, will you join us in the Bund? Even my second nudge, far from gentle this time, could not keep Carl in his place. He was on his feet, and from the tenseness of his fist, I expected him at any moment to hurl the stein, which was still filled with beer, into the Bund leader's face. Instead he hurled words, and they were strong, monosyllabic words, all of them summed up to the general effect that he'd see Schwartz in a spot warmer than even a Nazi concentration camp before he'd joined the Bund. Schwartz took to his heels. The dog, growled Carl, the dirty dog, to ask me to join his stinking Bund. Me, American right through to the core of my heart. Me, with ancestors in the Civil War and the Revolution. I let his boil come to a milder simmer, and then I said, as quietly as I could, Carl, for once I think you've made a mistake. Not that I don't agree that his invitation is a rank insult, but suppose that what we think possible is true. Suppose that the Bund did know of the jewels, wanted them for their cause, robbed the safe, killed Radoff. Who'd ever find out all this except the member of their organization? And if that member happens to be you, well, we'd clear Father Tierney immediately and pin this crime on the culprit. It took me two hours of talking and a succession of beers to get him to the point where he was listening. Finally, it dawned on him that this really was a great idea. We left the tavern and walked the streets until we met Schwartz again. Then, still glowing with our idea, we offered to join the Bund. Only when the calm light of morning came shining in through our window did we wonder whether we'd made fools of ourselves. And then it was too late to pull back from our membership in what we honestly regarded as a troop of our country's most relentless foes. 
End of Chapter 3 Recording by Maria Therese